This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. Welcome to This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. This is episode number four, recorded on March 21st, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, and today I have with me my co-host, Jim Geller. Our other co-hosts are unable to make it. This is a big week for pediatric cancer doctors, all gathering uh, for the semi-annual Children's Oncology Group meeting, and most are gone today. Today on TWIPO, we will discuss a number of issues, a couple meetings that just occurred that some of us attended, and we'll also discuss an important new publication about immunotherapy for cancer that's very exciting. Just to remind you again, we'd like to have you email us any inquiries or comments or let us know anything we get wrong or anything you'd like to let our listeners know, so please email us uh, at TWIPO, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer, all one word, dot O-R-G. So I just got back from Las Vegas at a meeting. It's my first time there. It's quite an interesting city. Uh, the meeting was the sixth international conference on oncolytic viruses as cancer therapeutics. This is a meeting that's been alternately sponsored or hosted by a Canadian group of scientists and some scientists at Mayo Clinic uh, looking at the use of viruses to treat cancer patients. And this is not a new idea. It's quite old. And there are a lot of people trying to pursue it, and there's a lot of excitement in the field. So I just wanted to briefly mention some of the, the striking things that are happening in the area. Usually this meeting attracts 100 to 150 people, and they have it only every two years. Uh, this is the first time they've had it in Vegas. Maybe that's why it attracted more, but there were over 230 uh, participants from uh, scientists and clinicians and companies, and uh, there were a lot of exciting presentations over the four days of the meeting. Most notably, there's a company called BioVex that was funded or started in 1999, and I chatted with the CEO of that company, Rob Coffin, and he has a herpes simplex virus that uh, expresses GMCSF, uh, an immune-stimulating gene, and they've been testing it in patients with melanoma, and they're now in an international phase three trial uh, we've actually had it open here at the University of Cincinnati. It's for adult patients, and they've been injecting every two weeks patients with uh, late-stage melanoma, and they've accrued almost uh, the entire cohort. Uh, they're looking for something like 430 patients, and they're near near up to 400 now, and uh, they're hoping if the results look good that they're going to actually apply for FDA approval uh, in another year or two all of their Phase two data look quite promising, so as long as their Phase three data looked promising. And there was some recent news reports uh, that Amgen actually uh, took quite an interest in this field and bought out BioVex for, uh, in the end, if you add up sort of the incentives and so forth, uh, something on the order of half a billion dollars. So uh, this could be, this is very exciting for the field because we think in the field if one of these viruses gets FDA approved, there's going to be a cascade of interest in other viruses. And as, as you know, Jim, we've had some clinical trials open here with viruses, and uh, this 
past year. In fact, I gave a talk at this meeting about how this past year has been a banner year for pediatric trials with us opening four different virus trials uh, in 2010. So whether or not any of these work and how best to use them and what cancers, which viruses may be useful for and what doses and what combinations of other drugs are all things that need to be discovered, but there's certainly some momentum in the field. Yeah, it's nice to see a whole new field of anti-cancer-directed therapy move forward, uh, uh, expanding our options therapeutically, and uh, curious to, to think which uh, which uh, oncolytic you think might uh, reach approval first. I know there's a, a couple that are coming close, perhaps Realicin's also experienced phase three investigation, as has the HSV. Do you have any sense of Either of them might be approved in the next year or two? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that's uh, something that's very important on all of our minds. And There were three viruses that were touted as sort of the leading candidates. Uh, you mentioned the second one, Reolysin, which is being tested by a company in Canada uh, called Oncolytics Biotech. And that virus has been in a number of phase three trials. In fact, something like 16 different clinical trials in adults. They are launching their first phase three trial in head and neck squamous cell carcinoma patients. I think they've got all the plans that are pretty close to being in place but haven't quite launched that trial yet, as opposed to the, the BioVex slash Amgen one that is now uh, nearly done accruing their phase three patients. The third virus that's quite far along in the drug development pathway is the Generex JX594. That's a vaccinia-based virus Again, been in a number of adult uh, clinical trials with promising, all of them have promising safety, but also promising efficacy data. And at this meeting, the company presented some uh, phase two data of intravenous administration of this virus. I think this that's where all of these need to go in terms of being able to treat patients with metastatic disease. So it's very exciting that they've done a phase two trial with adults with intravenous use, and it seems to be uh, quite safe and from the data they presented. So I think those are going to be the three that uh, one of those is going to, you know, beat the others to the punch, but by no means is it going to be exclusive to only one virus. And they're all three being tested in different kinds of cancers. Uh, the focus for the JX594 is uh, liver tumors. Again, the focus for the BioVex or Amgen one is melanoma. And the focus for the real license actually has been quite a broad number of of cancer. So all three are very exciting. All three are moving along. Um, I, the, the whole field of oncolytics is, is very exciting. I know we have other topics to talk about today, but is there a, uh, a site or a place that our, our listeners can turn to for more information about oncolytic viruses? So the site, there, there's a lot of different sites. Uh, each of these companies has information on their websites. Clinicaltrials.gov is a good place to start to see what Clinical trials are being tested. Just search for the virus name, or even if you just search oncolytic virus, you come up with a number of hits. And uh, I have to mention, of course, that Solving Kids Cancer, who's sponsoring this podcast, also sponsored a webinar uh, about at least the pediatric trials, and there should be a link on their website. Excellent. So the next topic I wanted to touch on this podcast was uh, the recent conference that was hosted here at Cincinnati on uh, diffuse intrinsic pontine gliomas, which is a vexing problem in pediatric oncology. And, of course, I was at the Las Vegas meeting during this time since it was last week. But since you were here, would you mind sharing a few comments about that conference? No, yeah, I'd be delighted. And, and uh, as you know, uh, DIPG, or diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, 
is uh, is a devastating cancer in pediatrics. Uh, it, it unfortunately takes the lives of, of nearly all, uh, with some exceptions, of the children who are affected by this and their families who are affected by this secondarily. Um, it uh, we we uh, thankfully had the support of the Cure Starts Now Foundation who who uh, organized this symposium here here in Cincinnati. Um, uh, along with several other foundations, actually numerous other foundations uh, who supported this. And we were able to bring in uh, uh, between 75 and 100 uh, investigators from, from six different countries uh, to participate. Uh, it was a, a double-pronged symposium where uh, clinicians and scientists uh, got together and discussed the latest science, the, the latest challenges, and uh, in concert, families and foundations were also grouping together to discuss their their challenges and and uh, learn uh, amongst themselves, and I, I would say the theme of, of the meeting, uh, which which I think was all positive and, and exciting on many levels, uh, included uh, a new wave of biology um, that has now become possible because of the increased amount of tumor tissue that's become available through various studies, both uh, autopsy and at diagnosis. Very interesting data from the French groups, which should be impressed soon for those to read. Uh, but other investigators in Canada and the U.S. acquiring new tissues, uh, and uh, through the generosity of, of course, the patients and the families, uh, and the availability of perhaps over 100 uh, DIPG tumor specimens now uh, together provides the opportunity to do genetic profiling and looking for new mut uh, novel mutations and really start to get into the, to the heart of the biology driving this unfortunate uh, deadly cancer, uh, opening up new paths to possible new targets to treat this. And similarly, uh, there was discussion of new uh, tumor models that existed uh, for DIPG, again, expanding our ability to study this disease, uh, culminating in our ability to test new agents. And we certainly had plenty of discussion regarding uh, new agent approaches, both at the level of clinical trial design, at the level of biology, but also at the level of delivery. Uh, um, and uh, uh, both nanotechnology was discussed, as well as vaccine-based therapy, immune-based therapies, as far as how we can tackle this this cancer. And we we left with with uh, 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 renewed uh, invigoration to to tackle this together, uh, partnering with families and foundations. And uh, I think everybody got a lot out of it. That sounds exciting. You know, there was a publication recently in the New England Journal of Medicine about a rare lung uh, disease for mainly in adult women, called LAM, and there was an accompanying editorial, and it was a trial that was conducted at the University of Cincinnati and elsewhere and in Japan and showed that a mTOR inhibitor had activity in this disease. And the editorial accompaniment was really about the importance of scientists and clinicians partnering with patient groups, especially for rare diseases, to really mobilize the forces and the resources and to... Uh, and, and the fact that the patients play an extremely important role in these kinds of studies for, you know, volunteering to be part of it and to be energized and to raise money. So it sounds like it's the same kind of theme. Absolutely. Uh, this is a, clearly a partnership between, between clinicians, scientists, and families and patients, and uh, it's becoming increasingly challenging to separate all of us, and I don't think we should. So is this going to be an annual event, this meeting? Was, are there other meetings that are focused on this same topic? Uh, there are overlapping meetings. Um, there's discussion about uh, how to move uh, the, this consortium uh, forward, how to move DIBG.org forward. Uh, I think annual meetings may, may be challenging for uh, the relevant uh, parties to, to bring new 
new discoveries to the table on a regular basis. Um, and uh, our thoughts at this point were every other to every third year meetings, but also uh, to uh, uh, tap into other meetings such as uh, ISPNO and other neuro-oncology focused pediatric cancer meetings where the DIPG discussion at an international and uh, level can continue. And who were the organizers of this meeting? Uh, the organizers primarily were Cure Starts Now, a foundation that uh, was started by the parents of a child who uh, suffered from this illness, uh, along with uh, investigators at Cincinnati Children's, as well as at Northwestern in Chicago. Great. Sounds like it was a, a successful partnership. Hopefully they can make advances as they work together, which is one of our podcast themes to continue to push uh, the, the envelope in the field. Now, you mentioned that they discussed immunotherapy, so that leads us into the topic, the main centerpiece of today's podcast that I wanted to discuss, and it's based on a paper by, I think I counted 21 authors, uh, as usual, great things these days need to come from multidisciplinary groups. Uh, this is a paper that arises from Stephen Rosenberg's lab at the National Cancer Institute. Interestingly, uh, among those many authors are a couple of pediatric oncologists, some giants in the field, namely Lee Hellman and Crystal Mackle are the ones I recognize who also work at the NCI and have made many important discoveries and uh, have, are running clinical trials in immunotherapy for cancer. So I wanted to go backwards in time just a little bit uh, to a time when I was a graduate student. And in 1986, I had been in the research lab after being in medical school for a couple of years. I had been in a research lab for two years. And a paper came out by Dr. Rosenberg, and it was published in Science, September 19th, volume uh, 233, page 1318. And it was titled, A New Approach to the Adoptive Immunotherapy of Cancer with Tumor-Infiltrating Lymphocytes. And in this paper, he talked about the fact that they had discovered that lymphocytes that are found in a tumor are sensitized to that tumor and are attacking that tumor. And so he pulled these, these lymphocytes out and cultured them and showed that in mice, uh, they were very active. You could grow them, expand them, and then give them back to other mice with cancer and that's the term adoptive uh, when you're giving cells to another mouse, and cure these tumors, including metastatic disease uh, and cancer. And he was using a model of colon carcinoma uh, who had liver metastases and lung metastases. And I remember looking at that paper when it came out and said, well, that's it. That's the cure. This is unbelievably cool. You know, here he cured these mice and and I thought, why are the rest of us going to do any more research? It's done. Uh, of course, that didn't turn out to be the case. Cancer hasn't been cured in many cases. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done. But he's been working on this approach year after year after year. And it's taken this long, really, to start to see some of the real advances to figure out how to tweak the system, what, what it takes to get this kind of a work done and, and get it to use uh, to work in patients. And so he's published several uh, papers in melanoma patients showing uh, responses in a, with a similar kind of strategy. And this is the first paper, really, of a clinical trial in a non-melanoma disease, uh, and it's one that impacts our patients as well, mainly uh, adolescents, young adults, synovial cell sarcoma. So as you know, Jim, synovial cell sarcoma is uh, probably 
the most common non-rhabdomyosarcoma sarcoma that we see in our in our practice, and it's one of the few that is also found in adults that's felt to be not very sensitive to chemotherapy. Although of the non-rhabdomyosarcoma cancers, it it does have some sensitivity, particularly to agents like ifosfamide. But certainly, uh, we need help treating patients with this disease. So Dr. Rosenberg reports in this paper uh, using the same adoptive strategy, essentially, that he used years ago, but with a twist. And that twist is very key. So what one of the things that he discovered over the years was uh, the cells that they pull out of the tumor, these tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, or TIL cells, uh, needed help. Um, the tumor microenvironment is immunosuppressive, they didn't work that well. They needed to be activated and expanded. Uh, and one of the, when just pulling them out of a tumor, they're not, uh, we don't know what they're targeting. And what, what the approach he's taken is now to actually take cells from patients and tell them what to go after. So the idea is you identify a, an antigen or a marker that's expressed on cancer cells and uh, take T cells that are against those, take uh, the receptor that T cells use to bind to that antigen, and actually put it into a patient's own T cells. So it's a T cell receptor that's targeted against an antigen. In this case, it's something called NYESO1. And it's expressed in 80% of synovial sarcoma patients. It's also expressed in other cancers at a lesser rate, including patients with melanoma. And this is a report of a clinical trial where they took the patient's own T-cells, put in with gene therapy, a gene encoding a T-cell receptor against this antigen, stimulated them in culture, grew them up, expanded them, uh, and then gave them back to the patients. And of course, these are uh, patients who had already been heavily pre-treated with other therapies, who had failed any kind of uh, treatments that they had previously received. And in this report, he had 11 patients with melanoma and six patients with synovial cell sarcoma, and they had all been pre-treated. They ranged, the sarcoma patients ranged from age 19, so kind of stretching down into that adolescent young adult range uh, up to age 47. And then the melanoma patients were all, in general, a little bit older, age 30 to age 61. Uh, And what, of course, they all had been quite heavily pre-treated. He has a table there where they talk about how many different cycles of other chemo, and they all had to have uh, advanced disease that was progressive. And uh, they they performed this maneuver with their cells and gave them back, and they got some pretty dramatic results. Granted, these are relatively small numbers. It's more of a pilot study than any kind of advanced study like a phase 3 trial. But of the synovial sarcoma patients, uh, four out of the six uh, had... Uh, at least a partial response, where their tumor shrank, and some of them that lasted for quite a long time. Uh, patient number 13, for example, uh, had 18 months where the tumors uh, were shrunk, and at least at, and that's at the time of this publication. And some of the pictures he includes in this paper are pretty dramatic. You know, you and I both know a number of patients we take care of who have pictures that look like this with large masses growing in their lungs, that really cannot be removed, that shrink and disappear. Yeah, no, this, this, this is a, a, a very appropriate paper for us to discuss in one of our early podcasts here. I, I think that 
there, there's, there are some outstanding strengths in, in what's being presented in this paper. But I first have to disclose uh, my own bias in that I, I, without, of course, violating any HIPAA rules, I have myself referred patients to this, this group for, for this, this type of therapy. So clearly I'm one who uh, already would, would support this. And the reason I do support this, and I'm glad to see uh, what we were already seeing in abstract form come to publication through a peer-reviewed uh, manner is this is a perfect blend of biology, genetics, and immune-based therapy. It starts with understanding the biology of cancer, understanding what's unique about it, the ESL expression specific to certain tumors. Uh, it goes into uh, genetic manipulation of, of one's own lymphocytes, which is done outside the body to put in a, an appropriately expressing gene to tweak it a little bit, and then it uh, ramps up with immune stimulation. Uh, so you've got a, you, you've learned about the biology of the tumor. We've uh, used some current genetic uh, uh, techniques available to to clinicians that are now uh, relatively safe to do in, in people uh, in mod modifying these cells, and you're ramping up the immune system. And you know, immunotherapy has been around for a while, as you say, and it's been used to treat melanoma and, and renal cell carcinoma. But to see to see these investigators and to see clinical medicine reach the point where we can take advantage of biology, use genetic manipulation and uh, in, a, in a positive sense to stimulate the immune system to see responses in solid tumor models like sarcomas, uh, it, it's really groundbreaking. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a phenomenal effort uh, by, by the investigators, and, and they should be uh, given their due credit. Uh, the, one, the one weakness I would suggest uh, that exists here is, is an age cutoff issue. Um, and, uh, you know, when we think about these therapies, uh, one could envision these therapies equally tolerable uh, in younger patients. And I'm wondering how long is it going to take for an advance that could be this exciting, an advance that could be uh, conceivably given to a 13-year-old with a metastatic synovial cell sarcoma. Um, it, the, the, the traditional age cutoff of 18, when you see advances that are exciting, sometimes can be frustrating when you're not quite at that age mark. I don't know, Tim, if you have any feelings about that. Oh, absolutely. You know, when Paul Myers wrote an editorial that w appeared on the um, Liddy Shriver uh, Foundation website, ESUN, um, that talked about the age cutoff of clinical trials, and he made an argument that there shouldn't be any age cutoff, that we need to be trying these in all ages, and there's no reason to exclude uh, younger patients from clinical trials, even these early phase trials. Uh, you know, I think there's a fear that that there may be adverse events that are different in a younger age group, but in general, pediatric patients tolerate therapies better than adults, so if anything, it might, you know, bias one, it might be safer to do, although that's not the conventional wisdom, and everyone's often afraid of testing something in, in children. Uh, and, and there are federal rules that suggest that, or that state that you have to have the prospect of benefit for research in children, and that's not always the case in adults. So, you know, um, it's, it's walking a bit of a fine line, but I agree, we need to make sure these advances move into younger age groups as soon as possible. And like I mentioned, there are some pediatric oncologists on this on this study, so hopefully they're working toward that. Well, that was my follow-up question. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, all these patients were pre-treated with ifosamide or cyclophosamide combinations with doxorubicin-based therapy uh, prior to getting this therapy, at least the sarcoma patients. Melanoma is an adolescent young adult disease, which we, we just see less often in most pediatric centers, but... We certainly uh, see, see our share of both, uh, but for the synovial cell in particular, 
these were appropriately pre-treated patients. These are not chemo-naive patients who are clinically responding uh, to something different. And, uh, um, you know, we, we pursue new agent development, new agent delivery mechanisms, not always knowing. We always hope for success. Uh, historically, if you look back at phase one trials and pilot trials, the, the amounts of, of, of success that you see are often disappointing, um, but hopefully that ratio of, 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 of successful trials to, to unsuccessful trials is going to continue to change as we, as we apply better science. Well, I think that's one of the exciting things about it is it's very early phase research, and yet they're seeing quite dramatic results. Now, there are some problems or some issues. You know, it's, first of all, uh, the, the, about the science, there's a restriction for uh, HLA type. So, as you know, we all have different tissue types, and that determines who can be a donor or a recipient for organs and bone marrow and so forth. And, and it's, it's also true for this kind of therapy because the T-cell receptor not only recognizes that antigen, but it recognizes that antigen in the context of a specific pocket where that antigen is presented by the HLA uh, mechanism. And and so patients with only a certain kind of HLA type at the moment are what they have those T-cell receptors for. So Correct. And I, and I believe only one in four patients who would want to go on this would be eligible based on that HLA criteria. And that's an important thing for people to understand as they listen in and they hear about new things is not everyone always is eligible. Uh, or not every new therapy is, is, is feasible for each patient. But I do think it is proof in principle that we can learn about biology of a specific cancer, uh, use genetic uh, technologies, and ramp up the immune system to tackle tumors that traditionally were not amenable to immune-based therapies. Um, ideally, we can learn not just from this study, but we can learn how to generalize the techniques uh, that would be to, to broaden the applicability to new tumor epitopes, and, and it, with new immune-based approaches that would expand uh, the applicability of this approach. Yes, and, you know, there were not every patient re- responded, and so we don't know why not. And they looked at some parameters in here, you know, in terms of how much of the T-cells were there at certain time points and how active those T-cells were. And there really wasn't any correlation with whether patients responded or not uh, in terms of how effective they were able to transduce and get these cells to, to take and to last. But we need, so there's a lot more to learn. Why did some of the patients not respond? And anytime you target a specific antigen, there's also the opportunity that cancer has to get rid of that antigen and still live on and therefore have what we call therapeutic escape. And so there may be patients who may initially respond to this kind of therapy but then become resistant. That's something that's going to have to be worked out. And then what about all the other cancer types? Do they or do they not express antigens like this that could be targeted? So there's still a lot to learn. Right. Uh, it takes a while for them to process all these cells and transduce them. And patients can get worse during that time, and that is another limitation. Uh, there are, of course, a couple negatives, uh, as, as you point out. I, I, I've expressed optimism about this and support uh, about this study. Um, we, don't, we don't know who will respond, as you point out, but we also don't know how long people respond for. Um, the, you know... Uh, when we talk about pediatric cures, we talk about cures. Uh, buying a year of life is nice. Buying uh, a whole life is better. And so, uh, the, it's, but it's a step in the right direction. Uh, the other point that, that uh, hasn't gone mentioned by either of us yet is that while the infusion of cells itself is well tolerated, uh, there is some chemotherapy given with, with the regimen, cyclophosphamide and 
fludarabine, and actually interleukin-2 to ramp up the immune system can be quite toxic. And anyone who's received Hydocyl-2 or delivers Hydocyl-2 understands that that regimen carries with it some morbidity and occasionally, well, perhaps not in this case cohort, uh, occasional mortality from toxicity. So uh, thankfully it's been uh, well tolerated in the confines of this study and the way that they're doing it, um, but um, uh, it, it does pack a punch. Correct. Uh, for those of you who want to look at this paper yourselves, it's published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Uh, it was published ahead of print on January 31st, and hopefully we can put a link uh, to it on the uh, Solving Kids Cancer website. Now, moving on, uh, we are trying to have a section of this podcast that deals with emails. To date, none of our podcasts have actually gone live, so no one has had a chance really to, to email, but some of our sponsors who are involved in creating this podcast and helping us work with it uh, have written in a few questions. So uh, the one I'd like to tackle today briefly has to do with episode one where we discussed the paper by Smith et al. uh, in in the Journal of Clinical Oncology about outcomes for children with cancer in general. And the question comes from Donna of Park Rapids, Minnesota, who says that uh, table two that we discussed, which involves proportions of deaths, have changed quite a bit for some of the cancers over the period from 1975 to 2006. And she would be interested in hearing our comments on that, and particularly is this evidence for prioritizing research dollars. So, Jim, I'm going to throw that to you since you're the only other one in the room. What are your thoughts? I'd be happy to take that question. It's an important question because we, you know, with whether it's nationally through the Children's Oncology Group or uh, in in, in NCI-sponsored fashions, we're collecting this information for that exact purpose. Well, Truth be told, for the purpose of making sure that we're improving outcomes for children, uh, but the process does does blend in with allocation of research effort. Uh, that effort can come in the form of dollars, but it also comes in the form of clinicians and scientists uh, working hard, uh, independent of a dollar value attached to it. I, I, as mentioned, that the, 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 the cancer-related deaths change most dramatically uh, in that there's been some decrease uh, uh, in the leukemia group However, it's still a large majority of cancer-related deaths are still in the leukemia group. So while substantial change occurred there, it still accounts for the pri- uh, a large majority of cancer-related deaths. Can you remind us of the percentage there was? Yeah, it's gone from 39% down to 30% as far as accounting for uh, from 1975 to 2006. On the flip side, uh, brain tumors uh, and other nervous system cancers have increased from 18% to 26%. And again, these are the two largest groups they're still the two largest groups. Um, most other changes, uh, you know, there are some other changes where neuroblastoma has gone from 6, per- 6 or 7% to 9% of cancer-related deaths, uh, and then uh, some uh, uh, insignificant changes uh, in other, other areas, uh, perhaps some decrease in Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's. And the overall picture I'm seeing here is less cancer-related deaths from le- leukemia lymphoma than the solid tumors in neuro-oncology. And I, I think that the research dollar question is a good one, but there's already a natural selection for how we apply our efforts uh, through cooperative consortium and how many clinical trials are being conducted in different areas, uh, how, much, uh, how many labs are opening up throughout the country and the world looking at different cancer models. There seems to be a natural self-selection on the part of investigators to want to tackle the more challenging problems uh, that are causing mortality uh, and morbidity. Um, and on, on the flip side, um, interrogation, investigation of, of, of cancers causing 
less depth is, is not necessarily less important. Um, we learn a lot from interrogating every kind of cancer, uh, studying them, not just improving cure rates for the children uh, who are dying from those uh, uh, cancer categories that don't account for the larger numbers. Those are children that are still dying. And those uh, research uh, findings, the biological discovery, uh, the uh, new target identification that occurs in these rare cancer models um, are, are still huge leaps forward for cancer as a whole. Uh, it still teaches us and, and, uh, uh, about how cancer works and about how we can tackle it. So there's a role for interrogating the more common cancers leading to uh, more of the cancer deaths, and there's still a role absolutely for interrogating the more rare cancer models accounting for less cancer death. And I, I think there's some natural selection that happens along the way, uh, and um, I, th I think there needs to be research dollars for both. Um, I think you would all probably we would probably both agree to say that uh, there's not enough research dollars for either. That's for sure. And um, and you know the, the the NCI and the NIH do a good job at providing dollars to scientists and clinicians to conduct trials and conduct research. Uh, it's just not enough. And uh, Thankfully, there are foundations out there willing to work with clinicians. Again, this comes back to partnership, which perhaps is a good theme for today, uh, as one of our themes for today, and, and how we can move, move the field forward. I totally agree. We need to let the not only the uh, importance of each cancer type clinically and patient impact, but also the science uh, drive uh, where we put our money so that we can learn as much as we can from even the rare cancers. So, and it's got to be team science these days takes lots of people working together in all aspects, as your conference illustrated. So I guess that's it for this week. Thank you, Jim, for being here. My pleasure. Uh, I learned a lot, as usual, and I hope our listeners did, too. Again, we'd be happy to answer any questions. Please send us a note at TWIPO at solvingkidscancer.org. And remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.